0: We're going to continue on in our series in Romans and talk about our justification, how we're made right with a holy God, how sinners like us, losers like us, are made right with a holy and righteous God. He's so good to us, and it's not about us at all. It's all about Him, and it's all about Him and His love for us. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from uh, Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to ask you to please turn to Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And I'm reading this particular portion of Scripture, these passages, because we're talking about Abraham and he was such a man of faith and a man of faith and a man of faith, and that's true, but he was only a man of faith because God gave him that faith, because God chose him. We don't want to put Abraham way high on that pedestal because, oh, Father Abraham, wonderful, and he was as he was obedient, but understand he was still a man and he still sinned and he still needed Christ. So that's why I'm going to read this morning from uh, Genesis chapter 12 beginning in verse 10 this is the word of the lord now there was a famine in the land so abram went down to egypt to so- sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land when he was about to enter egypt he said to sarai his wife i know that you are beautiful that you are a woman beautiful in appearance and when the egyptians see you they will say this is his wife Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men, gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Far from perfect. Now Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. That's a long section. This is the, the, the promise that God gives to Abraham that we're saved by faith alone, justified by grace alone, and not by the works of the law, not by anything that we can do. And it's a this would be like a major, major, mega sermon. We're not doing that, so we're going to break it up between this week and next. So hopefully it won't be as long. I make no promises. (laughs) But we are going to just look at the uh, 13 through uh, 17 this morning. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you believed, who gives life to to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. Again, we thank you for this word, Lord. Thank you for this entire series as we see your hand of grace, Lord, as we see the plan of redemption unfolding right before our eyes, Lord God, your sovereign grace, your sovereign mercy, our sinfulness, our need, your provision for our need, Lord, and then how we are to live for you. So we just thank you and praise you and pray that we would Um, that you would put it all together for us in our hearts, Lord, by your Spirit. Give us understanding, give us wisdom, and help us to know who we are in Christ, that we may live as followers of Jesus Christ, Lord God. We pray that this is not simply an academic lesson or a theological lesson, but that that it speaks to our very heart, so that we know who we are in Christ and what we have, and therefore live for Jesus Christ to the fullest. So, Lord, please bless us. Give us understanding, wisdom, and insight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God and amen. All right, last week, we talked about works and rituals. Those things can't save you. They never save, they never have, and they never, ever will. That we are justified. We're made right by grace alone. And so Paul continues that whole argument here in chapter 4, and he's using Abraham as an example of that, right? Abraham teaches us very well about the grace of God, the promise of justification by faith alone and not through the law is Paul's burden in this entire section. He wants to say, guys, there's nothing you could do, nothing that you have done that's going to make God love you and say okay to you, right? That we can't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. And that's what he's getting forth. It's by his grace and only through Faith in Jesus, who does please the Father in all that he does. I love this so much. And I want you guys to understand, just kind of put it all together from where we started to where we are today in terms of Romans. Paul just made certain in chapters 118 through 320, he was making certain that we understood the nature and the extent of our sin. That's the bad news, isn't it? It was tough. It's still. It's difficult to realize just how unworthy we are before a holy God. We don't like to do that. We always want to save a little bit for ourselves. You can say, you know, I'm pretty bad. I'm mostly bad, but I'm not totally bad in terms of my sin nature. That's not what the Bible teaches about us. That's why Jesus had to come to save us because he is the only good one. And then he gives us his goodness as we believe in him. Amen? Praise God. So Paul, in those chapters, was just telling us and showing us Week after week, you know, passage after passage, the nature of our sin. There's no escape. You can't go here. You can't go there. You can't go anywhere. We're just bound up under sin. So we, we, he, he wasn't leaving us any room to escape our sin nature. But he's doing the same thing, just the op, in, in regards to grace, right? That's what he's doing here. The extent and nature of grace. That's what he's teaching us. At this here in these passages, yeah, this is how sinful you were, but here's how good God is, and here's how he saves sinners like you, right? And he's, and he's bringing forth that love, that promise of justification, the nature and extent in regards to our salvation, and it is all of grace, all of grace. Get that through your mind, get that in your heart, because all of us, every one of us, although we say we love that, and, and we try to understand that we don't always live that way. We always want to hold something out to God about ourselves, don't we? I'm just just—I'm pretty good here. I'm not totally bad over there. There's something that I have to do that I have to bring before you so you accept me. Paul's saying, no. It's by grace alone. And that's the argument that he's making here with Abraham. So he's making that certain. There's not one thing, not one thing that we can do to earn, to merit, to deserve God's favor upon us that's a big deal and that's hard to deal with there's no other religion no other philosophy that teaches this there's and everything else every other path you want to try and follow it's always something you do to get a little better to hope that something you do finds favor so on and so forth i mention that every week because it's important for you to know that every single week right he calls us it is god who chose us Right? We're passive before the foundation of the world. He calls us with an effectual calling. That is, when the gospel is preached and you finally wake up and it finally gets into your heart and your mind and you do see yourself for what you are in light of God's holiness and say, I'm a sinful person. Depart from me, Lord. That's effectual calling when you know that you need Jesus Christ, when you know that there's no other way, when you know that this, this life and the life beyond means nothing apart from Him. When your heart and mind is changed, that's effectual calling as the gospels preach. He's the one who changes your heart. He regenerates our hearts. We don't do that. He does that for us as the gospels preach. We're converted by him, right? He grants faith and repentance to us. We're accepted by him, and that's our justification. We're. Declare not guilty before him. We're adopted into his family, never to be left again. He keeps us forever and ever and will see us through to glory. That's the hope of the Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, that's our hope. It is God's grace. It is God's mercy. It is God's love. And all we do is say, amen, and praise God. How can I serve you? Let me be faithful to you, whether I'm here, whether I'm there. We, we see that. Um Paul talks about that, Philippians one twenty one for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether we're here with the Lord, or whether we're there with the Lord, or here waiting to be with the Lord, we are of good cheer because we are serving our God. Right? The promise of justification is by faith alone. And that's the argument that Paul's making here. And he begins in verse 13. He does it in several ways, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. He does it three ways negatively, two ways positively. So in five different ways, he's going to show us that justification by faith alone is God's plan for salvation. It's by his grace and by his mercy. So verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness by faith. That faith, that righteousness comes by faith in Christ, not through the law. That's a big deal. He wants to keep pressing that point because we always have a tendency to do. We always have a tendency to try. We always have the tendency to say, hey, I'm not that bad or I'm pretty good in this way. No, 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 no. He's, He's saying, no, that's not it. It's not by the law. It is by faith alone. Abraham received the promise, not by something that he did. God didn't see him being really good, and then saying, Abraham, you're so good, I'm going to choose you. We know that from Genesis 12. We read that last week. What was Abraham doing when God found him? He was sojourning. He was going along in his family. He wasn't searching for God. He wasn't looking for God. God finds him. We don't find God. He finds us, and we're not on a search for him. He seeks and saves the lost, right? See, this is this is shutting us in a little bit. Some of you probably say, "Yeah, but what about my?" Didn't I say? Didn't wasn't I looking for him? Mm. He finds us. Now, everything that Abraham did afterward, when he left his family, when he left his home to follow God, that was because God's faith was already in him. That didn't make God say, okay, Abraham, I love you, now you're mine. He was already his. That's why he left his family. That's why he left his home. That's why as Christians, we have our highest priority, our highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ alone, more than our own family, more than our mother and father, more than our husbands and wives, more than our children. First comes Christ, because then as we love Christ and follow him, when we are going to be able to serve and love our family the way we ought to. Apart from Christ, it's really hard to love your family the way that we are called to, to live and die for them as well. So it begins with him. He left his family. Believing, he believed God for an heir, the promise, even though he was older, that God would give him an heir. He was willing to sacrifice his promised son. He he um, rescued Lot. We see that faithfulness of Abraham after he was believing in the Lord, after the Lord had saved him. He had faith before receiving the sign of circumcision. We talked about that all last week. Right? It wasn't the circumcision, oh, I'm being faithful, I'm doing all the duties, I'm doing all the rituals, now you're going to love me and save me. No, man, I love you, and I've saved you, and that's why we do the rituals as a sign of his love for us and him. Kapiche, We have that backwards. A lot of times we think we have to do this, then he's going to love us. No, he loves us, so we do these things, right? That's a big deal, because he gets the grace, honor, and glory. It's never about us. We're zero. We're nothing. He is everything. Paul's basically teaching us that in Romans here. Even when he sinned, we read about that, didn't we? Was Abraham all great and good? No, he was so scared for himself. He was willing to give his wife. Tell them you're my sister, because if they know you're my wife, they're going to kill me and they're going to take you, man. So he said, tell them that you're my sister. That way they'll let me live and I won't die. And eventually I'll get you back and we can go. So he kind of was selling his wife out to Pharaoh and so forth in that way. And, God says, "No, that's not going to happen. You're not going to do that." At that point, God didn't abandon Abraham. And said, "Okay, you now you failed. Here's it. You need to keep this. Now you're not faithful. Goodbye, Abraham." No, Abraham's forgiven in the Lord. Once He saves us, He keeps us. He's not going to let us go. Right? We live for Him. When we sin, we repent and turn back to Him. So it's not about the law. So Paul goes on to argue, first of all, in the negative for justification apart from the law, right? And then, and, and when we talk about the law of God, we, it's mostly the commandments, the moral law of God, keeping those commandments, because even at this time, the, the, the ceremonial laws weren't in place. But broadly speaking, the, the law includes the commandments, the ordinance of God, the ceremonial laws, the things that pointed to but never produced salvation in Christ. But uh, mainly think of the, of the moral law as we're speaking in this context here. Now, Paul goes on to say, and these are just simple arguments. They're really simple, but they're profound. If you get them, if you believe them, then you're not going to believe in salvation by works. You're going to believe in salvation by grace. So Paul is very simple. The promise to Abraham, his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness by faith. Then verse 14, for if it is the adherents or the keepers of the law who are to be the heirs, that is to be the faithful ones, faith is null and the promise is void. So that's the first point right away. He says, look, man, it can't come, justification by faith alone, can't come by the law because the law makes faith unnecessary. If you want to keep the law, then faith is unnecessary. It why? Simply because if you can earn your way, then you don't need to believe in God's promises. If it's up to you, then that's up to you. Then you could do it in order to please God in that way. Then the promise is null and void of his grace. The law nullifies God's promise of salvation by grace if that promise is conditioned on keeping the law if it's on on us doing something first of all we can't even do that we can't keep it perfectly and that's a condition of of, of the law of keeping it keeping that standard perfectly who could do that can you do that can you keep the law perfectly can you say to yourself i've never sinned in thought word or deed in my life i never broke one of the commandments even in my mind And then, yeah, here's to you, then then you could do it. There's only one who's ever done that. His name is Jesus Christ. Nobody in this room, that's for sure, nobody in this county, nobody in this city, nobody in this world has ever done that. And if if you could say you have, then I have some oceanfront property in Arizona to sell you, right? The law nullifies God's promise. His promise would be worthless. And that's what Paul's saying. You're, you're going to make God's promise worthless, man, if you think it's something that you could do. If you don't keep that law perfectly, if you don't keep it perpetually all the time, then you failed. And That's, that's his argument. And it's like saying this. like I give you a promise of a free gift. If I promise you a free gift... But then, in the next breath, I say that you have to earn it by keeping certain rules that I give you, otherwise you don't get the gift. See, that doesn't make sense, and that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't make sense for you to think that you could do something to earn God's love when salvation is by grace, man, and he's pouring that out on, on you. Why are you fighting against that? Because we're sinful. Because we always think there's something we must do, and we're raised that way. It's that way in society. You know, the better I do, the, this is what I deserve, this is what I get. It's not like that with God. It's not like that with salvation. Because we can never do enough and we can never be good enough. capiche And he's, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying here. It doesn't make sense. If I promise a free gift, then I condition it with something that's inconsistent. It's incoherent. It doesn't... Paul's saying that. that that's his first argument. It's real simple. It's straightforward, man. If, if it's by works of the law, then that nullifies the promise of grace. Do you want to nullify the promise of grace? Go ahead and try to work for your salvation. Go ahead and say, there's something I've done, something I could do to please you, God. So you look at me and say, good little boy, good little girl, you come into my kingdom. We can't do that. That's what Paul's saying, number one. Number two, um, in verse 15, he says this, for the law brings wrath. So first of all, it nullifies grace. Second of all, try to keep the law. The law brings wrath. That's what it does. That's what it's meant to do justification can't be through the law why because the law produces wrath simply put, when you break a law what happens to you when you get busted you suffer the consequences for it and even if you don't get busted you're still going to suffer the consequences for it down the line when you stand before god so you're going to suffer consequences for breaking the law sooner or later god will cut you down just like that song says right that's what the law produces and it's so counterproductive. And here's what people try to do. They, 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 they try to keep, if you place your hope in keeping the law and trying to do the best that you can and hope that God likes, that's, that's so, all, you're doing the, the worst thing that you can absolutely do in terms of trying to be saved by God, man. When you try to do something that God's going to look and say you're pretty good, you've just devoted yourself to having to do everything that you do in a perfect way so that God will consider you good. That's the only way. It's counterproductive because if your hopes are in the law, you're in big trouble. Because the more rules that you try to follow, the more laws that you try to keep, you're going to fail. You can't do it. So instead of earning favor from God, what you're actually doing is storing up wrath from yourself. That's exactly what happened with the religious leaders and the Pharisees. You know that. What were they doing? Were they trying to please God? Were they trying to wait on God by grace and mercy? No, they were trying to please Him all the time by doing what? By keeping the law, by being a good Pharisee, by being a good scribe, by being a good Jew, and keeping the rituals and the rites and the practices and everything that they did and say, Look, God, here's how good I am. I'm glad that I'm not like that guy over there. I fast twice a week. Or is it twice a day? No, twice a week. (laughs) I read my Bible. Here's what I do, and here's what I do. But the sinner, the tax collector, pounded his chest and said, I'm not worthy of anything. Which one went away justified? It was the one who realized that he was unworthy. See, trying to keep the rules in that way to earn salvation. Now, there's going to be a place for the rules. There's going to be a place for the law. You just have to wait till we get to Romans 6 and 7. Don't worry about that. This is just a free-for-all. You can't just live the way you want. We're talking about a category here. Let's not conflate justification and sanctification. It's a category. This is justification. This is how you're saved. This is how you're made right with God. Now, living as a Christian, we'll talk about that as we move forward. But to be saved, it's by grace alone. There's no keeping in the law. And and even when you're saved, you don't keep the law in order to maintain your salvation. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on because the law brings wrath. You see it with the scribes and Pharisees. Did they end up loving Jesus? The scribes and Pharisees, no, they ended up hating Jesus so much If you read Matthew 23, Jesus is going to say, here's what you do, and here's what you do to try to earn and try to keep, and you make even those whom you proselytize twice as sons of hell as you. Understand? That's what the law gets you. It has consequences. You gain nothing by keeping the law in order to own salvation. You're simply expected to do so. That's the expectation. That's the standard. You get punished when you break it. That's why we're in trouble with God. Listen, man. If you're a really good driver and you're driving the speed limit, you're a you're, you're conscientious driver. You're such a good driver. You're, everything's up to date. Your insurance, you know, all, all your admissions, everything like that, your inspection, you're all good, and you make sure you drive the speed limit, and you're going down the road doing 25 when everybody else is doing like 35, and Dom, the police officer, comes behind you, turns on his sirens, and, and he pulls you over, and you're like, what, what, what's this officer pulling me over for? You know, and, and so you're just kind of wondering, what did I do? What have I done? Is my tail light out? You know, what's going on here, man? Do you know something about me that I don't know? So he comes over to you. And if the officer, you wind down your window, and, and you know how the officers say it, you know, do, do you know why I pulled you over? All right. Don't you love those questions? Don't you love asking those questions? Do you know why I pulled you over? <laughs> No, I don't know why. And all of a sudden, would you be surprised if all of a sudden the officer said, I'm pulling you over to congratulate you because you're doing such a wonderful job keeping the speed limit. And by the way, here's a, here's a $50 gift certificate to Chick-fil-A because you are keeping that law. You are so good. Yeah. Like that's going to happen. Right? You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Nobody's going to reward you for not robbing a bank. If you go to the bank and, you know, you deposit your money and, and all of a sudden you're leaving and the teller says, thank you so much for not robbing the bank. You know, here's here's a free checking account for not doing that. It's you're, It's absurd because that's not the law. is, That's not the function of the law. Keeping the law doesn't gain favor like that in the eyes of God in terms of salvation. All it does is condemn us. It shows us our need for Christ and it drives us to Christ. The law shows our need and it shows our inability. That's what Paul's saying. It brings wrath, man. That's the punishment of it. That's the judgment of it. And that's why Jesus took that wrath for sinners like you and me. Amen. He's the one who paid the price. That's what Paul's saying. That's his argument. That law brings wrath. And then he goes on and says this in verse 15. or The, the second half of verse 15. It says... For where the law, for the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. Now, some people get confused by that. We've already talked about this, touched on this. But let's try to explain it once again, because you need to understand. He's saying you can't be justified by the law, because the law, when you know the law, only increases guilt. Like, the more you know the law, the more guilty you are. When you know more... There's more culpability there, and that's kind of the idea. He's not saying, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a time when there wasn't the moral law. Well, before the Ten Commandments were given, people had free reign, and there was no moral law. There was always the moral law written on people's hearts. We know that. We understand that. We talked about that many times, time and again. right? It didn't only come with the Ten Commandments. So even, I'll just turn back to Leviticus 18. You know the holiness code, and Paul's talking about inappropriate relationships, what we can't be doing, what you shouldn't be doing as the people of God. But then he extends that to people who don't know God and don't have the moral law or the commandments. But he's pushing them out of the land. Why? Because they were doing those very detestable things, those immoral those sexual things they shouldn't have been doing, that's part of the reason he was getting rid of them. Why? Because they were still culpable to the law, even though they didn't have the written commandments before them. So in Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 24, after he goes through the the long section on the depravity, on the sexual morality, he says this, do not make yourselves unclean by these things. Don't do those things. Love your wife only. Everything else is out. Everything else is out. All those sinful uh, relations. He says, don't, don't make yourself unclean by these things. For by all of these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean by all of these things. That's what the nations were doing. The nations that didn't have the law, they still had the law in their hearts. They were still culpable and they would still answer to God. That's why he's driving them out because they were doing these things. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Okay, so that's just one passage, but you know, throughout Scripture, we—that's the idea. Romans chapter two. Just flip the page back if you're following with me. Romans two, we know this as well. Well, two pages, um, beginning in verse fourteen. Paul says this: For when the Gentiles, who don't have the law, they don't have the commandments like the Jews have the the, the Ten Commandments before them. When they don't have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. They're a law unto themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness to that fact. So you understand? It wasn't a time where, okay, you're just free to live any way you want. No, there was always the law. Everybody knows you don't need the written law fully defined to know that murder is wrong, right? You can go to a country where they don't have really the law of God. There's still going to be laws against murder, stealing, cheating, lying to one degree or another. He's talking about culpability here. When it's not right before your eyes, there's there's when it's right before your eyes, it increases the culpability, but nobody's off the hook. That's the big deal. That's what he's saying. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You know that saying, that's, that's very true. When people stand before God, it doesn't matter where you're from, where you were raised, if you've never even heard of God, when they stand before God, they're going to know that they are idolaters, they're going to know that they are blasphemers without having to be told. They're going to know, because we already know in our heart of hearts, even where there is no law in that way. So ignorance is, is no um, excuse There's level of culpability. And that's the idea here when he says, but uh, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Where that law is, there's transgression. So when we were kids, man, we were like 12, 13 years old. We had train tracks. If you grew up around here, you knew the train tracks were always by your house. We'd walk the tracks and stuff. And silly boys that we were... We we weren't trying to derail the train necessarily, but we would like put things on the track, right? We didn't know there was like a law against it. We knew what what we were doing wasn't exactly right. But how many of you tried to derail trains when you were growing up? Was it just me and my friends? <laughs> what did you put on the track? They said if you put a penny on the track, on the rail, then it will do something, right? It, it will make the train. So we did that. And, and sometimes we would put old bicycles on the tracks, you know, or a big boulder. Old bicycles. Old hockey nets, you know. Were we trying to derail the train? I don't know. We, I don't think so. But, you know, we, we kind of knew that it was wrong. Because it was a joke. Now, now, juxtapose that. That, that's opposed to the extreme enviro-terrorists that are out there even today that know exactly what they're doing, that know exactly what the law is, and they're deliberately trying to sabotage trains, oil cars, and coal cars to get them off, and they're planning. Now, do you understand? You see the gravity? Where there's no law, where there's that, 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 that culpability is still there. doesn't get you off the hook. But there's greater culpability. That's what Paul's saying here. So if you go to a field, you see a field, and there's a sign that says, no trespassing. If you trespass, you know, here's the you'll be per- prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But you're walking and you're trying to get to that place over there, and you don't want to walk around, you see the sign, so what do you do? I'm just gonna walk through the field. So you break that law, you know that. There's a cul- like the high degree of culpability there. 100 yards down the road, same land, same scenario, same thing, but the sign is not there. The sign is knocked out. Say, oh, man, we could just go through this field. We don't have to go around. Let's do it. And you walk through that land. Have you broken the law? Yeah, you still trespassed, right? You're still culpable for that. But the ones where that sign was standing right there and they deliberately went fully knowing, that's what Paul's saying with the law there. Those other ones are still in trouble. They're still culpable but there's degrees. So that's what Paul's saying. When there's no law, there's no transgression, but that law makes it come to light the level of culpability in that situation. The law makes it more plain. So, negatively, negatively, that's what Paul's saying. This is why justification can't be through the law. Number one, it makes faith unnecessary because now you're doing it and you're not relying on God. Number two, it produces wrath. The law wasn't meant for you to try to keep it. That's not the way of salvation. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It just brings wrath. right? We're, we're going to pay the... Somebody has to pay the price. Somebody has to pay the consequences for your sin. It's either going to be you or Jesus Christ. That somebody's going to pay. Number three, it increases the guilt. where that Where that law is known, where it's there before you, it shows that culpability before God. I think it's a positive argument, and um, we're just going to talk about this a little bit today, and then we'll carry on. This is kind of like part one of a part two bigger sermon. So uh, here's the positive argument, proving justification must be by faith alone. And Paul's just making these arguments. That's all he's saying. Because he knows our hearts. He says this, verse sixteen. verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. And we'll stop right there. Um, that it may be by grace, through faith. What Paul's saying now, negatively he spoke, now he's saying positively. All he's saying, he's just saying that God pours out undeserved unearned, unmerited favor on lost sinners. That's what he does. It's nothing about us. That's a big deal. It's nothing about us. It's all about him. He sovereignly grants grace and forgiveness to salvation. To all whom he will. Again, we'll talk more about this as we get farther along in Romans. You say, well, that might not even seem fair because why him and not me? Why that person? Listen, none of us deserve anything from God except that wrath because we're sinners. But the good news is God has chosen a multitude, a countless multitude of those whom he pours out his grace upon. And who are those multitude? Everyone who by faith believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I'm preaching the gospel to you today and you respond in faith, then you belong to Jesus Christ. You could be sure that you're one of his. You could be sure that you are among the elect. We'll talk more about that as we get into Romans 8 especially. But that is what grace is. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved. By grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. Even the faith with which you believe, even when you say, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, that faith that you show and trust in Christ is a gift from God himself. It's not something in you. It's not something you muster up. It's not something that comes from within. It comes from outside of you. It's a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, and that's what we're talking about here today, so that no one may boast. That's a big deal. Because if you could say, Lord, I've done this, or I'm not that bad, or I'm pretty good here, then you have something to boast about. But not before God. Nobody does. Because we're sinners. Saved by grace alone in Christ. Now, I just explained that to you. We just saw that very briefly, and yet it's so hard to fathom. It's so hard to believe. It's so hard to understand the concept of grace. That's why so many people don't, like even professing Christians. We still want to hold on to something. It can't be like, it can't be, what the, the, it can't be, this is, it's too easy. There has to be something more, doesn't it? It's just grace. Isn't there something I could do? Isn't there something that I can add? Isn't there something that he could look at to say, okay. No, that's that's what makes grace so amazing. I can't explain it. When you think about it, it blows your mind completely because you say, me? A sinner like, how could you love me? And yet that's what grace does. Sheer grace is extraordinarily scary because it's completely in God's hands now. It's not in your hands at all. You don't have anything to offer him. It's, it's, It's up to him, and it's all about him. That's why it's scary. We always want to earn. We always want to do. We always want to try. Grace says, no, I'm giving you this despite who you are and what you've done. It could be so hard to grasp. (laughs) There's got to be more to it. Something I've done, something I've tried to do in order to justify the grace. Can't do that. That's what makes grace so amazing. You know that? We are passive when it comes to our salvation. He does it all but I repented, I believed, I, that's right. But as I just said, that faith itself with what you believed is a gift from God. And even your repentance is a gift from God. Remember in Acts chapter 11, when Peter's talking about the spirit being poured out and the gospel going out to the Gentiles in chapter 11, and um, what verse is that? Acts chapter 11, 18, 17, Acts 17, yes, Acts 11, beginning in verse 17, as he's um, recounting how the Lord saved even the Gentiles. Verse 17 says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So faith and repentance, we kind of think that's what we do. Okay, God calls us, God changed our, but here's what we do, and kind of add that to, no, 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 even that which we do is a gift from him. We only do it because he gives those to us and enables us to believe and repent on him. Salvation is all of grace, salvation is all of God. And once, you're, once that's settled in your mind, that brings the gratitude. That brings the amazing grace. That just brings that awe before the Lord. It just—it kind of leaves you speechless. It's hard to—it's even hard to describe. I tried to get a few quotes on that; they don't even suffice. But Augustine does say, "The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but it makes them so." That's Augustine. Mercy is God's favor that holds back from us what we deserve. Grace is God's favor that gives us what we do not deserve. Bernard, were it not for the grace of God, there would be no such thing as a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think he puts it just, you know, splendidly there, simply put in that way, justification is by grace alone, we're saved by grace. And he goes on to say this, and it gives us our assurance as well, because now it doesn't depend on us. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So everyone who believes, that's the guarantee. That's the assurance that we have. That's why we know that we can't lose our salvation because we've done nothing to gain our salvation because our salvation is not ours. It's his. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. We can't undo what he's done in our hearts and lives if you're a true Christian this morning. Right? If you earned your salvation, if I believe by faith, then I have to maintain my faith, and I can lose my faith if I'm not a good little boy or girl, or if I go off the beaten path, or if I did like Abraham did, well, then maybe I'm not saved. Maybe, how many people, how many of you guys know people that have been saved five or ten times or more? Raise your hand. Okay, two or three times. Okay, more hands. I'm just teasing. No, nobody else raised their hand. But you know, you have heard those people, well, I, I, I walked that aisle again. I had to be resaved and rebaptized because I lost my faith. No, you were in deep weeds maybe if you're a true Christian, but you didn't lose your faith. And if you were that way, you never had faith to begin with if you've gone out from us in that way because our salvation is not our own. It is Christ. He works in us. He chooses. He calls. He justifies. He sanctifies. He adopts us. He causes us to persevere. He glorifies us. We can't undo what He's done in us. Who do we think we are to say, you know, hey, I chose you, now I can unchoose you. Are you kidding me? If He chooses you, we belong to Him. Amen, and praise God. That's a big amen, an emphatic amen, and that's what Paul's saying here. That's a guarantee or His grace guarantees our salvation because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on Him. If it depended on us, we would be back and forth. How arrogant is that? How bold is that? How brash is that to think that you have the power over God to say, yeah, I chose you, I could live how I choose to live, and if I lose my salvation, I can come back to you again. That that that, that doesn't even square with one inch of Scripture not even one centimeter, millimeter of Scripture at all in terms of salvation. If he set you free, then you are free indeed, amen? And he's the one who sets us free. If it's up to us, we fail. We can, and we'll never know for sure. We can never know for sure if we're truly saved, if we're not saved by grace, or if we're saved by grace but kept by works. That's baloney. we're, We're saved by grace unto good works, and that's a big deal. And we're going to talk a lot about that. This isn't this cheap grace thing where you're just, oh, I'm full of grace, now I can live any way I want. Again, that's so wrong, that's not what we're talking about here, ever. When you're saved by grace and you're truly saved, you're going to want to do the works. You're going to want to adhere to the law. You're going to want to please your Savior. You're going to want to be the man that you need to be for Christ or the woman that Christ has called you to be. And He's going to be everything in your life and you're going to do everything you can by the power of the Holy Spirit to please Him. Amen? That's what true Christians do. It's not just kind of free pass to go and do what I want to do because I'm saved by grace. No. That's Joseph Prince. I almost said a bad word. Stuff that we can't. That's not biblical at all. Justification by grace alone. And when you know him, you love him. And that's what Paul's saying here. So you see these beautiful arguments that Paul made? Simple, 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 but so deep and so good and so profound. That's what they are. That we're not saved by the works of the law. Because it's through the law. Didn't come through the law, but through righteousness by faith. For if you try to adhere by the law... The faith is null and void. The law brings wrath. It increases transgression or the knowledge of that. It depends on grace and that grace is a guarantee of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's kind of part one for this morning. Uh, We'll pick up next week. We'll continue to see how Abraham and all believers are made righteous apart from works. Let's pray.